It's like in ancient Rome, there were these two teams, the, the blues and the greens, and for a thousand years, they fought each other. Well, this is like the society we're in now. And there's such a desire to beat the other side that that seems to uh, trump all other interests. Ted Joya is one of America's leading cultural critics, and he's a talented jazz musician. But perhaps surprisingly, he has never lived in New York. Instead, he lives in Austin, Texas, and before that, Silicon Valley. And that's given him the perspective of an outsider, a true independent. He's written more than 12 books, and he helped start Stanford University's Jazz Studies program. But today, he spends all his time writing for his Substack. The Honest Broker. There he publishes cultural criticism and dispenses wisdom, earning a cult following that devours his hot takes on how TikTok has passed its peak, how society no longer has a counterculture, and how internet platforms are changing the world. In this conversation, we discuss all of the above, as well as tribalism in the media, the sameness of social media, and the story behind the name The Honest Broker. This is one of my favorite conversations of all time, and I really hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome to The Active Voice. I'm Hamish McKenzie, and here is Ted Joya. Ted Joya, thank you very much for joining me on The Active Voice. Well, thank you for having me. You're a very well-known jazz critic, jazz writer, music writer in general, cultural critic in general. Uh, you've had a glittering career in the arts. Um, you're a well-known internationally for your writing and your criticism. And yet the name that you've chosen for your Substack is pretty, and I don't mean to cause offense by this, it's pretty plain. It's pretty straightforward. It's The Honest Broker. And I want to know, why did you choose that name? Well, I got to say up front that I wish I had a more exciting nickname. <laughs> you know, my dear late friend, Stanley Crouch, another music critic, he called himself the hanging judge. And I always thought, well, I need, wouldn't it be great to have a nickname like that? People would take you seriously if you <laughs> walked in the room as the hanging judge. Uh, but I go by the honest broker. And there's a whole story about how I became the honest broker, which was as much a surprise to me as anybody. Uh, but if you'd like, I'll tell the story. Give me the story. I'd love to hear it. Well, you know, before I was a writer or a full-time writer, I took all sorts of jobs. But my jobs weren't like most other people because I had certain special skills. You know, I, I got an MBA from Stanford Business School and a degree from economics at Oxford. And this put me in the demand of people who wanted these special skills. And so for a period of years when I wasn't writing, I was going all over the world trying to solve all sorts of problems. I guess, I guess you could call me a kind of fixer. They were never easy problems. And on one particular occasion, I had to go to China to set up a market uh, for a company, set up an operation. Very difficult situation. My, my patron and host then was one of the wealthiest guys in Hong Kong, and he made all these introductions to me. And everybody I talked to had a different strategy of how you crack the China market. And they all conflicted. Nobody could agree. <laughs> and I was hopelessly confused. And then there was a Stranger I met at the bar one night, an Australian, a drunk Australian, who started giving me advice. And actually, he gave me the best advice of all. The drunk Australian gave me better advice than all these high-powered business execs. This already sounds like like a movie. Was, are you sure it wasn't Crocodile Dundee there? That's right. You, you, know, this is a, you pick out a big knife. and No. He, <laughs> and what he told me was, well, Ted, if, 
says, I've, I've been all over and I've solved all these problems in Asia and I can tell you what, exactly what you need in China. Said, well, what's that? So you need to find the honest broker. <laughs> the, honest, the honest broker, what is it? It's like the Wizard of Oz. You find the Wizard of Oz and it solves all your problems. And I, and I was going to laugh. He said, no, 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 I'm, I'm honest. In every city in China, there is somebody who operates as an honest broker. And he told me these people are not part of the government. They're not part of the Communist Party. Often they're just lone individuals, but they have power because everybody trusts them. It's the one trustworthy person in the community. And in a society in which there's not rule of law and there's not good copyright laws, there's not good intellectual property laws, you need to find the honest broker. And once you find the honest broker, the honest broker will introduce you to everybody you need to know and, and often won't even ask to be paid. He said, Ted, the honest broker probably won't even ask for payment. But be aware that once you get a favor from him, he might call you up five years later, 10 years later, and then he'll want to return to the favor then. And the honest broker's only key to success is trust. People trust the honest broker, and the honest broker is not out for the short-term game. It's a long-term game. The honest broker plays a long-term game building relationships and trust, and that's how you succeed. And so on. And actually, this was great advice. You find the honest broker, and that's how you succeed in China. It was only two, three years later, I'm in the midst of doing jazz writing and music writing, and I look around, and it seems to me that there was a tremendous amount of distrust and corruption in the music business. I saw people giving good reviews in exchange for favors, or if they could hang out with the band backstage, all of a sudden the band got good coverage, or there's payola. There are people writing reviews to impress other reviewers, which is which is truly a pathetic thing, but it happens all the time. The reviewers aren't <laughs> writing for the reader. They're writing to impress their own little inner circle or peer group. And I was looking at the situation. I said, how can I be a better music writer in this context? And all of a sudden, I remembered the story of The Honest Broker. And I said, that's what I need to be in my own field. I need to be The Honest Broker. So when I set up shop on Substack, I needed a name for my Substack. I said, well, it's The Honest Broker. Now, of course, it causes confusion. People think I'm giving stock advice or selling real estate or something. <laughs> Endlessly confusing, but I'm going to stick by it. It might be better to be the hanging judge. But for better or worse, my title from here on out is going to be The Honest Broker. It's a very honest title in its own right. Modest, humble. It, it communicates trust. Well, the goal should be to serve the reader. I, I know this. People tell me that every writer writes for readers. And I say, well, it's not actually the case. I see people write to get tenure mm -hmm. from the tenure committee at the university. I see people write to please the editor. I see the people in my field writing to appear cool. They want nothing more important for many music writers. They want to look cool and hip and with it. There are all sorts of, I call these corruptions or distractions. Use whatever words you want. I believe the safest path and what's been the key to my success really is I write for the reader and I trust the reader and I assume my reader is smart. I assume my reader is discerning. And I also assume my reader has very little tolerance for bullshit, which is a, a very good thing. It keeps me honest because I write for the reader. It keeps me as the honest broker. Why do you think honest brokers are in such short supply? Why is it? Why is there a gap in the market for this kind of approach to writing? We are at a very interesting juncture in our cultural history. If you look at media right now, the level of trust from the public is lower than ever before. I saw a survey last week of what percentage of people trust the media. 
and I don't remember if it was 17% or 7%. It was one, one of those two numbers. But even, Both are pretty even, bad. If it's 17, <laughs> even if it was the higher number, it's still ugly. And this should lead to soul searching among people that are in the legacy media institutions. They should look in the mirror every morning and say, why do not I have the kind of trust that I should? And to my mind, there are a whole host of reasons why this is happening. Uh, I do think we've become more polarized as a society. People have lost the ability to distinguish between journalism and advancing an ideology. I believe that corporate media outlets have become very cautious. I also believe corporate media outlets play to their audience. They decide what their audience is, and then they will tell that audience what they want to hear. And that might very well be enough to keep them in business, but it further erodes trust. And, and the way I look at it is even if you pick a side and you write to please that side, it may appear as, you know, we go, let's, let's say we live in a polarized society that's sort of 50% one team and 50% the other team. They're fighting every day. It's like in ancient Rome, there were these two teams the, the blues and the greens, for a thousand years, they fought each other. Well, this is like the society we're in now. And there's such a desire to beat the other side that that seems to uh, trump all other interests. And so, but the problem is, if you start writing to please your one side, they may support you because you have a team behind you. But even then, they don't trust you because they know you're just feeding them ideology. So uh, that's how I look at the world. I think that, that a lot of people in power have decided there were more important things than being an honest broker. There were more important things. And that that has given, it's an opportunity for me and other people like me that will write truthfully and from the heart. How do you guard against that for yourself? How do you prevent yourself becoming vulnerable to these same cultural currents? I mean, you're on social media, you use Twitter, you're out there in the world, your voice is out there in the world a lot. It would be easy for you to step over the line and become another one of those players who are feeding ideological secure to a certain tribe? Well, first of all, I'm fortunate that I don't write about politics. And sometimes people said, Ted, why don't you write about politics? And I said, I view politics the way Don Corleone viewed the drug trade in The Godfather. If you remember, there's that great scene where they go to The Godfather, Don Corleone, and, and this, this new gangster group in town wants his support and financing to sell drugs. And Don Corleone has never done drugs. He's done gambling and prostitution, which he says are innocent folks. <laughs> but drugs are different. And at one point, Don Corleone says to this guy, and I love it, he says, I never tell anybody what they should do for a living, but your business is a dirty business. <laughs> That's how I view politics <laughs> and political writing. So, I mean, so it's, it's actually easy for me not to get embedded in that. And why is it dirty business? Because I think it goes down to the thing. There are too many people involved in it who have to, if they choose between telling the, the unvarnished truth or supporting their side, their team, they sacrifice the truth. And so even if you want to be a truth teller in that field, I don't think you can. Uh, it, it's a bunch of cheerleading. And I, I think even if, if you try to be a truth teller in politics, it's, it's extremely difficult. So anyway, I'm fortunate I don't get into the, into those things. But even so, it's easy to get corrupted even as a music writer. 
It's and, and I ask myself every day, am I living up to my standards? And there's all sorts of difficult things that come with it. I, For example, it's difficult for me to be close friends with musicians, which is unfortunate. People think that's one of the perks of being a music writer. You, you, you hang out with Mick Jagger on the corporate jets, which may not have been in my desk. Destiny, anyway. Uh, I've never been invited on a corporate jet, but uh, well, that's that's a true sign of credibility. Do you mean that you have to keep a distance from the people that you're covering for sort of journalistic ethical reasons? I feel it's not good for me to become too close to people I might have to review. And on the other hand, there are many people in the music world I genuinely like. I like these people. Some of the, the musicians are great people. Some of these people are a lot of fun to hang with, and 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 so I'm always asking myself. What do I need to do to maintain my independence and credibility? And also, there are other things I do. I pay attention to what readers say. To me, that's the, that's the true gauge for me is, is the reader. I, I have a close relationship with the reader. Substack's a great place to do that. Uh, you, you develop that personal relationship, and they will, they will keep me on the right path. And also, I take criticism seriously. If you're up online on Twitter or Substack or any of these places, you get criticized all the time. And, and, and honestly, most of it is just ranting and venting and strutting and posing. But every time somebody criticizes something I've written or said, I, I spend some time thinking about, it. is this valid? Is there anything I can learn from this? Can I, do, can I do this better? So, I mean, there are a whole host of processes I use, but the goal is to continue to be the honest broker, to continue to be a trusted voice and that comes at a price. It does come at a price. Do you feel like you're a little bit out of fashion with that perspective? I'm, I'm not <laughs> criticizing it. Of course, I'm, I'm actually celebrating it. But I, I grew up in an old old school journalist type of um, education as well, old school journalism mindset, where you're supposed to be distant from your subjects. You're supposed to be striving for, if not quite objectivity, then impartiality. And these days, especially in American journalism, I see a lot of crossing of those lines. And there's this big debate going on about to what extent should journalists be opining on social media, et cetera. Is this a dying kind of view of how journalism should be done in your view? Do you, are you more hopeful than that? Well, I think things are changing, but I think it's going from bad to better right now. For many years, for decades, if you had said, are you out of fashion? I would say, absolutely. <laughs> I'm never the king of the cats. In the jazz world, you have people, that the cool cats, and there's somebody who's the king of the cats. And I could look in the mirror every morning and say, I will never be the king <laughs> of the cats. And for a variety of reasons, you know, my approach to writing was different. And, and probably the biggest thing is I never lived in New York. Mm. I had opportunities to live in New York. And, and, and I even at one point, went out to New York to, to do groundwork for moving there, but it just wasn't in my heart of hearts. To, I didn't, didn't feel at home there. I'm probably, of all the leading jazz writers of my generation, I'm probably the only one that's never lived in New York. And because of that, I'm completely out of touch. I didn't make the relationships. I didn't have editors opening doors for me. Things were harder for me at every step along the way because I wasn't at those cocktail parties, and that was bad. But here's the good sign. I maintained my independence and I didn't get embedded in institutions that tried to force me to do X, Y, Z for their own interests. I didn't get caught up in some periodical that I had to please their advertisers. I mean, I just, the, so for many years, being outside those institutional frameworks hurt me, but now they help me because that's what's 
turned me into an independent voice and a more trustworthy voice, I believe. I want to come back to this discussion about where sort of the media economy is heading and how it's changing. But I'm also interested in why you never lived in New York. Why did, why did you not feel at home there? I don't think I'm strong enough. I've got a very relaxed, easygoing mentality. I have a very laid back way of life. I need to be in an environment where I feel nurtured and supported that way. And so for me, the reason I didn't move to New York was mostly psychological. But I realized full well the price I was paying in my career. Realized full well the price I was paying in my career for not doing that. But things work out over the long run. You know, I, I as it turned out, I was in Silicon Valley during an extraordinary period that only afterwards was I able to say, wow, what I just lived through was amazing. What I saw here in Silicon Valley was amazing. And now I'm in Austin, where it's like the same thing is happening. It's a whole new revolution is happening. Let's talk a little bit about that time in Silicon Valley, because it's given you a perspective on tech as it intersects with culture. So how did you end up there? What were you doing in Silicon Valley? What, what time of the century was it? Well, my life story is very strange. It's very strange, Hamish. I came from a working class family uh, right on the cusp of South, of South Central L.A. Neither of my parents had gone to college I got a scholarship allowed me to go to Stanford, which gave me a taste of that Silicon Valley life. And then I got another scholarship that allowed me to go to Oxford, where I studied philosophy. But at that point, I had great degrees, but there were no jobs. I mean, I looked in the classified eds every day for jobs for philosophers, and there were no jobs for philosophers. So finally, in my mid-20s, I had to find a way to earn a living. I was playing jazz, and I was making some money playing jazz, but I felt that I'd let my, my parents down if they'd helped me get this great education. I was just a musician or a writer. So I felt I needed a, a career. And I applied to all sorts of programs. And I was sitting in England one day, and I had, I'd been, not to brag, but I'd been accepted by Harvard Law School and Harvard Business School. And you can do a joint program that gets you a Harvard Law degree and a Harvard MBA in four years. And I'm thinking, well, I'll do that. I'll be like Secretary of State, <laughs> or I'll be like a U.S. Senator. I like I. I had all these these dreams for like 48 hours. And then I just said, I don't want that though. I don't want, I don't want a high-powered career. I don't I don't enjoy power. That's a whole different conversation. I just I, I had no stomach for it. So I said, okay, I'll go back to Stanford, I'll get an MBA, and that'll give me some money. I can earn bring some money with the MBA while doing jazz. That was the idea. And I thought I would do business work. The original plan was I would work in business for five, six, seven years, and then I would transition to a jazz career. That was that was the plan. But so I did. I got that MBA now in the mid-80s. I'm in Silicon Valley and just it's life is crazy. And I started doing all sorts of jobs and projects. And I was working for the Boston Consulting Group and I worked for McKinsey for a while. And I'm just and it was an amazing learning experience. Eventually I did transition to doing jazz and writing. And I started to feel guilty. Now, why did I feel guilty? I felt guilty. I had gotten an amazing training in analyzing financial situations, consumer markets, and futurism, predicting the future. I had learned from the best people at Oxford, Stanford Business School, at McKinsey, at BCG. I had this great training, and I was just walking away from it. And I felt they should not have let me into Stanford Business School. That was a mistake because I'm not really using the amazing skills they taught me there. And I was doing a disservice to the institution by using that training to be a jazz guy. But here's the funny thing now. I found that it's precisely that business analytical financial futuristic training I did in Silicon Valley that makes me a really good music writer. 
because music now is being controlled by technology. Right. Everything that's happening in music now is being driven by web platforms, by uh, digital systems, by various economic models, by various wagers on how the consumer trends are going to play out in the future. And so the one good thing is I don't feel guilty anymore about getting that MBA. I now feel <laughs> it's actually empowered me as a music writer, and it's allowed me to see things that other people who've just done record reviewing all their life wouldn't be able to see. So I've the nice thing is I'm a better writer for it. And also I've come to peace with my own personal path, which for many years left me troubled and, and with, with guilt and anxiety. And given this view you have on music culture, music industry, on society, how big cultural movements happen over time, what do you think our view of this particular moment will be like, say, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years hence? Because these major platforms, these major technologies are having a shaping effect on culture, are having a shaping effect on the types of music that gets made and how we enjoy music together as, as a people. It's very interesting to try to take a long-term view on these things. I think it's absolutely clear that the first wave of innovation in the internet was destructive to the music culture. It destroyed the physical album. It destroyed uh, the incomes of many musicians. Music fans who had previously bought 5, 10, 15 records a month and spent $100, $200 on music now would spend $9.99 to subscribe to a, a streaming platform. Uh, so even the, the most loyal, dedicated music fans reduced their spending on music dramatically. Record labels became more cautious, began investing in buying up the rights to old songs rather than launch new artists. So for the first time in history, the music, not in history, since medieval times, for the first time since medieval times, the music business is more concerned with old music than new music, which is not healthy. So I really think the first wave of the internet was destructive to music and other aspects of culture too, because newspapers went out of business. I mean, I'm talking about music, but everything I say about music can also be applied to writing and even to some extent to movies or whatever. So I think the first wave was negative, but I do think when they look back on our current moment in the future, they'll see this was the turning point. This was the inflection point in the curve. And it's because things got so bad, they had to get better. Mm. So, for example, musicians could not make any money with a record deal, so they had to find a way to bypass the record labels and do it themselves. And the same thing is true of writing. It got so painful for me to deal with the New York publishing business that I wanted to bypass them. I got to a certain point, so I don't want to deal with these gatekeepers anymore. I will do anything to get away from dealing with the gatekeepers. And so now I'm on Substack and I've got direct contact with my readers. And I'm, it's amazing from any point of view, it's so much better. But see, they it had to get bad before it got better because if it hadn't gotten so bad, I would have stuck with the legacy institutions. And so I see this everywhere. I see this everywhere where creative people who 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago would have worked with a major institution that was going to launch them into their careers, they're now saying, I'll just bypass them. I'll bypass that and I'll go directly to the audience and I won't be accountable to anyone except that audience and to my own convictions and principles. And that's happening everywhere. And I think it's happening much faster than people realize, much faster than people realize. And the alternative channels 
are much more powerful than people realize. So, I mean, for example, you could take two situations, old media, new media, old media, let's say like CNN, new media, Mr. Beast on YouTube. And people will say, well, CNN, that's the big thing. But CNN on a given night might get a couple million people to watch them on TV. Mr. Beast has 200 million subscribers. And so I think when people look back in the future, they'll say this was the inflection point where the legacy institutions got so weak and so greedy and so short-sighted that the creative class bypassed them and found a better way. And 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 what I think you and I are part of this better way. And what role do you think social media is playing in that mix? Because it's new and starting to look a little bit old at the same time. This is a complex issue. I'm on Twitter a lot. And I made a decision more than 10 years ago that I was going to use Twitter to reach my reader. Now I primarily use Substack to reach my reader, but I still have such an embedded base on Twitter that I, I need to be there every day. And I and I enjoy being on Twitter, but I've had to I've had to work hard to enjoy it, which means not following the toxic people, blocking the trolls. I mean it's just it's it's a constant it's it's a constant labor to block out the ugliness on social media. Now the good news is I now have a Twitter feed that's beautiful and I deal with people that are lovely and I'm enjoy, I enjoy my time on social media but it's 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 like these these resorts in the tropics where the resort is great but if you go off the grounds the lion's going to kill you or the whatever and I feel that I've I've built sort of an enclave for myself on social media but that's the world the world now allows people to get up on these platforms and say what they're going to say Right now, like I say, Substack is a much better environment. I don't know what your your experience is in, in general, because you have a larger view on this than I do. But my view on my Substack is the comments are yeah, great. Yeah. And I've never, I've never ever been in a situation before where I published something online and the comments were great. But they're like smart people saying smart things and I'm adding to the conversation. Yeah. Sometimes I will read my own article, and I have to I hate to say this, but the comments are better than my article. I put a lot of care into this article, but the comments are much better. But how wonderful that is. And the fact that that can happen on a large social media or internet platform is encouraging. I'd like to think that's the future. You've written a lot about TikTok's role in culture and TikTok's role in, in music in general. And I wonder, do you think, maybe this is a layup of a question for you, but do you think TikTok is overall a positive or an, a negative force in, in culture generally and music specifically? Oh, this is a complex question. TikTok has a role in culture in general, but it has a particular role in music because a lot of musicians are going viral on TikTok and record labels have decided in the last couple of years that they're going to use TikTok to find new artists. So the idea is you're a record label. Rather than finding a musician yourself, you see what goes on uh, viral on TikTok, and then you sign the musician after they've already got an audience. In fact, I had a, a top A&R person at a record label call me up uh, uh, not long ago, and he admitted to me, he said, we will sign new artists, but we're not going to sign new artists unless they already have an audience. And by that, he means TikTok. They've got to have a TikTok audience, and then they will sign now, first of all, this is a beautiful strategy, except it doesn't work, because the record labels soon found out that once somebody has 20 million people following them on TikTok, they have all the leverage in a negotiation. 
So the record label started with their usual game is, hey, we'll give you 10, 15% royalties on music if you sign with the label. And then they said, well, what if we give you 25%, you know? And then eventually I heard through the grapevine that labels are offering 50-50 deals. Like, it's unheard of. They, they have to get away 50. And you know how much these businesses hate to give up 50%. I mean, Substack gives up 90%, which is extraordinary. But these legacy institutions, they want to collect the dollars and give the musicians the pennies. And so, first of all, it didn't work for the labels. The idea is that TikTok will turn them into stars, and then we'll just step in and sweep up the cash. And then the world doesn't work that way. And so the record labels are not adding value. But over and above that, even up until recently, you would say, well, yeah, but at least TikTok is launching new artists. But in this article I've just published, I show that the streams of the top 10 TikTok songs this year are about half what they were two years ago. So success on TikTok is not translating over to other platforms. So two years ago, it looked like it was, but nowadays you have a TikTok hit. It doesn't really cross over to Spotify or YouTube anywhere near it once did. So my belief is TikTok has peaked. And people are dubious when I, I say that. They go, well, no, no, TikTok is hot and new. How can it be old and tired if it's hot and new? And I said, well, we've reached this point in the cycle where markets get saturated faster, particularly TikTok, which is depending on 15-second videos. Very easy for the market to get saturated there. It's hard to do something distinctive, particularly because Instagram started imitating it and Facebook and everybody is imitating it. And all the engagement numbers show that people have gotten sick of these short videos. Not sick, but I mean, the, the amount of minutes per day is declining. The number of app downloads is declining. Uh, the, the transference into other uh, brand franchise expansion developments is declining. So on every measure, the TikTok formula is already in decline. It's just that the cultural leaders are so desperate they don't want to admit it. But they need to find something better to save the music business or the video business or whatever than TikTok because it's not going to be the long-term solution. It's going to prove to be a short-term fad. What about the kind of homogenizing effect of social media, which is something that probably shouldn't happen, you would think, if everyone's given a voice and it doesn't matter who, you're, who you are or your, what your pedigree is or and there are no gatekeepers. You would think that we should have this amazing diversity of thought and amazing diversity of content, amazing diversity of entertainment. But you've written in the past that we might not, we might be living in a world where there is actually no or a very limited counterculture. What do you mean by that? Well, the, there used to be a vibrant counterculture uh, in which there were alternative voices that were taken seriously by the mainstream and it could provide alternative views on things. But the culture has become more monolithic, and there's less opportunity for that. I mean, the obvious example is the movie industry. There's all types of Marvel movies. What are you talking about? Well, yeah, no, all these superheroes are different. What more diversity could you want, Ted? Yes, no. Everything is a sequel, uh, a prequel, a brand extension, a spinoff, or a remake. And it's because... The movie industry has just gotten too cautious. They don't want to take any chances. And this creates a homogenized culture, and it feels stale. It feels stale and stagnant. The music business is like that, too. There was one article where I just looked at all the hit artists now and, and pointed out how uncannily their music sounds pretty similar to the songs of 20 years ago. 
And so, yes, Lady Gaga is great, but she sounds a little bit like Madonna, doesn't she? And you could just go through the list, and it's it's not a good sign because generally music should change more over the course of 20 years than it has. But once again, everybody's cautious. I mean, just like radio playlists, there's this, if you want to get on, let's say a country Western radio station, they have a, a format for their playlist that hasn't changed in decades, even jazz. And I'm a big jazz lover. The jazz radio stations have a certain way they want that jazz to sound. And it's not much different than it was in 20 in the year 2000 or 1990. So everywhere we have a, a stagnancy out there and a certain sameness. But I want to point out one other thing I think is worth calling attention to. I've been influenced heavily in my work by a, a thinker named Rene Girard, who was at Stanford back in my days. And I used to see him, but I never took a class from him. It's one of my great regrets. But Girard believed that society was driven by what he called mimetic desire, which is a fancy word for imitation, the fancy word for imitation. And he laughed at all these complex social theories by Freud and Marx that would have all these convoluted explanations of things. And he would say, no, no, it's much simpler than that. People do things because they imitate their neighbors. They see what, it's like the, the, the kids in, in high school see what the cool kids are doing and they imitate it. And even when we grow up, we gauge what life we want, not by looking into our souls or into our hearts or by philosophizing. We decide what we want for our life by looking around at what other people got. Hey, they got that car. I want that car. And Rene Girard believed that if you really under, wanted to understand why people did what they did, you had to see why they were imitating, why they had this mimetic desire. In my case, I believe a lot of what we see now of even though the internet should allow thousands of independent voices to flourish, despite that, there's a certain monolithic quality and sameness. And I believe it's because of imitation and mimetic desire. And so platforms like Twitter, which should be independent voices saying fresh things, start to feel like everybody's shouting the same thing all at once. Mm -hmm. It's crowd psychology. Now, Elias Kennedy wrote about this in his book, Crowds and Power. There's a certain crowd psychology the crowds used to gather in the Roman Colosseum to see the gladiator games. They now gather on Twitter or Facebook or the social media platforms. And they fulfill the same function as the gladiator games, which is namely someone must be killed periodically, <laughs> please the crowd. Preferably in a spectacular fashion with their guts drawn all across the arena. And if you read Gerard, and I haven't even got into this in our conversation, but Gerard also had a theory of the scapegoat that the violence peaks up and then somebody must be killed. And generally the scapegoat is just an innocent bison. They just grab this person and he's killed. And the, and that the, the tremendous feeling of satisfaction and catharsis spreads throughout the crowd then. And this is the, the end point of this crowd psychology. And so people talk about cancel culture or whatever. And to me, this is, it's, it's, it's nothing new. It's just the same old thing. Somebody must be killed at the end of each spectacle. <laughs> And, and even if nobody deserves it, we will we will find a victim anyway. How do we break that? I mean, I imagine a lot of us are all sort of we're scared and frail, vulnerable humans who want our tribe around us, and we want that protection. And it's 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 dangerous. It seems like a dangerous thing to step outside the accepted position or the popular thing. Maybe maybe we don't need to break this. Maybe this is how we continue as a species. But we need a few people to to be bold and and break these bonds, right? How does that happen? That's a profound question. 
That's a profound question because let's assume that there's some truth to this, that we live in a society where the digital tools we use every day create groupthink, closed-mindedness, outrage, widespread imitation, and scapegoating of innocent people. Let's assume that that's true or partly true. What do you do about it? And I don't have easy answers there. I, all I can say is I've decided in my own life to try to be a role model. I'm very critical of institutions on Substack and on Twitter, but you almost never hear me attack an individual. And I do that consciously. I do not attack individuals. With one exception, Kenny G. <laughs> I have one exception. That's totally justified. It's the exception that proves the rule. But with the exception of Kenny G., I never insult, attack, mock, ridicule, or try to go after anybody as an individual. I never start a fight. I have been on Twitter for 12 years. I have not started an argument once. I have not started an argument once. Occasionally, when someone tries to get me into an argument, I respond. But less over time, and I've not... Almost no instance is that it has been a good thing for me mm -hmm. to do. And I believe on Substack, the community that I have on oh, The Honest Broker, they're like that too. I don't know if they're playing off me or the self-selection, but I believe if the leaders of our key cultural institutions did the same thing I did, and they probably could do it better because I'm a flawed human that 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 struggles. Even I have to go after Kenny G once in a while <laughs> just to get my yayas. <laughs> I believe if more people in key centers of power were like me, we could break the cycle somewhat. And that's the only way I know about it. And to me, this is like Mahatma Gandhi or whatever, Martin Luther King, the people that confronted a terrible social situation. And what they did is said, I'm going to set an example. Now, I'm not that level. I'm not, not even close to that level. But still, that's the right response. That is the right response. When you see a toxic moment in your culture and things going badly, all you can do is say, I'm going to hold on to what, what's decent and good and kind and compassionate and caring and at least try to stand up there when maybe other people will stand up there with me. What more can you do? That's pretty much it. In other words, don't move to New York. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably why I didn't move to New York. Huh? That's probably why I thought I would die in New York. I literally thought if I moved to New York, I would die. But that was that was that was forty years ago. I would not be sitting here if I had moved to New York back then. And don't don't get me wrong. I'm I, I'm making myself sound better than I am. You know, I I don't always live up to my own standards, but I try. And this is an interesting question. Now we're now we're getting a very philosophical question. If somebody says something, but they don't live up to their standards, what are they? Most people would say they're a hypocrite. And I would say, actually, the starting point of changing your life is espousing the standards you haven't yet reached. And so you need to, you need to, at some point, you need to say the right thing is to do ABC. And even if you're not quite yet at ABC, I, other people say, well, you're a hypocrite. You're saying you should do this. And, and, and we all fall short. It's, to me, it's like evil and law. The, the novelist who converted to Catholicism at one point. And at one point, uh, this woman who knew him looked at his desp des despicable debauched lifestyle and said, how can you do this and call yourself a, a, a Catholic? And he said, just think how bad I'd be if I wasn't. <laughs> I love that. Why did you choose the writer's life? Because you could have been many things. You could have, you could be very wealthy from, working for McKinsey and, and whatever comes after that. 
you could be a full-time professional jazz musician or um, any type of musician, probably. You've settled on the life of being a kind of cultural critic and writing, which is not the obvious choice. It's not the lucrative choice. Why did you do that? No, you're right. My life could have gone in many different ways. And and there was a point in my early 20s where I just felt that tangibly every morning that there, that you know, five years from now, I could end up a professor, I could be a lawyer, I could be a politician, I could be teaching at a university, I could be playing jazz in a cocktail lounge, you know, it just it felt my life was in flux. And you make choices because they feel right to you. Probably my my weakness in business is I never had any desire for power. I don't like being in positions of power. I was always an advisor to someone else who made the decision. I was generally the person doing the analysis. I worked directly with a bunch of CEOs where they had the 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 will to they had the Nietzschean will to power, but I fed them the analysis and all that. And that, that I enjoyed that. And I developed a skill in writing. My three skills were writing skills, speaking skills, and thinking skills. Those were the three real skills I brought to bear on everything I did. And I'm I I'm I'm sort of a like I said, low-key person, I like a relaxed pace of life. I enjoy sitting right in my office here and writing every day. I enjoy that. Uh, I don't need to be out and about. In fact, I prefer, I prefer the quiet. I prefer a life of solitude and contemplation. But I also want to have a positive impact. So if, in fact, you want to have a life of contemplation, a life uh, that's quiet and out of the stream of things, but also have a positive impact, inevitably you become a writer. Because that is that's the one way I can sit here in my little enclave, in my beautiful life here uh, in Austin, and still have, have some sort of positive impact on the world It's as a writer. So even though it's a strange path and I could have gone off in many other directions, and for a while I felt I was going to, I think the path was the right one for me, and I think it's the right one for many people. And that goes with the notion that being a writer brings with it a heavy responsibility. If you were going to write and have thousands of people read what you write, you should take every sentence you write very seriously. And so that's my view of writing. It's a kind of priesthood. It's a kind of holy vocation. Uh, and uh, that keeps me honest. That's what keeps the honest broker honest, is at least the idea that this should be the pursuit. This should be the way I should go after things. Isn't it a kind of power as well? Well, it, it, this is very interesting. What's good power? What's bad power? Back when I was doing consulting, Boston Consulting Group, McKinsey, and in other settings, I learned there were two kinds of power in every organization. There was positional power. And positional power is your job type, CEO, president, chief financial officer. But there was also a, a softer kind of power, power of influence. And so if I was consulting, let's say I'm consulting to a major Silicon Valley company, and I go there, I meet the CEO. I also find that there's always in every company, there are individuals who are smart, whose opinion is respected, and everybody trusts them and relies on them. But sometimes they're very low level, like a, a sales rep or the factory manager or something. And I had to find as a consultant, I had to find the person in the organization who had that soft power, what I call the power to persuade. And they often had the most intelligent things to say. I often learned more from them than from the CEO. Well, let me apply that to my own situation. I believe for a writer, the goal is to have the power to persuade. That's a healthy kind of power. And it only works if people trust you and you're honest and what you say makes sense and delivers results over the long term. 
That's a good kind of power. It's a healthy kind of power. So young writers starting out their careers today, given the state of the landscape for the media, given the state of how technology and how platforms are evolving, and given your position and what you're seeing through your career and through your life, what's the best advice you can give to those people? Well, first of all, I think writers should focus on what's in their own hearts and their souls and what they believe in and their own principles and values. So they should look less at what the editors are asking or less at what the tenure committee wants. They should have their own worldview, their own principles, their own core values, and that will guide them flawlessly in their writing career. It will guide them flawlessly. If you put your faith in people, people will let you down. If you put your faith in your core values, they will continue to guide you for decades. I look at my own life over a period of decades. Whenever I put too much faith in a person or institution, I would eventually be disappointed. But when I trusted my core values, they they, they haven't changed. My core values, it's like a, a compass that always points in the true direction. Secondly, you need to learn to write. And you can only do that by writing constantly. I published hundreds of articles before I could write well. I wrote for my high school newspaper every week. It was a weekly newspaper. I wrote for my college newspaper every week. I wrote for a local newspaper in my hometown. I wrote for the local newspaper in my college town, the Palo Alto Times, which doesn't exist anymore. I wrote hundreds of articles and they were lousy. Whenever I see them, I cringe. But after I had written 200, 300 lousy articles, they weren't as lousy anyway. They started Occasionally, there would be a good sentence or a good paragraph. And some point after I'd written about 500 articles, I had started to develop into a reasonable writer. So the next thing is you must write all the time. And nobody, I don't care how smart you are, how talented you are, nobody is a good writer at the start. This is a skill that only comes over time and over the course of years. And then the third thing is learn, because you're going to have to write about something and you need to know about it. If you want to be a music writer, it's not enough just knowing the names of a lot of bands. If you want to be a film critic, it's not enough just to go to the movies once a week. Because there are no stringent requirements for entry into these fields, people tend to assume, well, there are no requirements. But my view is if you want to be a music critic or a movie critic or a book reviewer or a political commentator or whatever, you must take that as seriously as a doctor does medical studies, as a judge does legal studies. You wouldn't let someone be a judge unless they had studied the law for many years. You wouldn't let somebody operate on your brain unless this person had studied neurosurgery and had done a few operations first before they opened up your head. In every other field, you would not trust somebody unless they had put in the time. And that's true of, of writing as well. Those are the three things. If you do those three things, well, you'd probably still be <laughs> at least at least you can be a writer and operate at a pretty high level. And you used to have a chance of having some impact on the world in a way that brings satisfaction to you and maybe some positive results out there. What degree of satisfaction do you have looking back on your life and where you've come from to where you are now? You came from, you know, you said neither of your parents were university educated. You came from a poor part of LA. I know you, your family is esteemed. I know your brother, Dana, was head of the National Endowment for the Arts and a, a poet laureate. Um, so something is going on in your family that's uh, provided the ferment that's given rise to like 
this position that you now occupy. But just to focus on you, what's that level of satisfaction looking back on your life and where you are now? Well, I've I've got a blessed life. Things have worked out so much better for me beyond what I deserve or or, or what I've what I've earned. Uh, and it sounds gratuitous, but it's genuinely humbling. And the good thing, though, is it makes me feel more focused on giving back. I mean, I'm at a juncture now where I'm, I spend a lot of time every day just answering emails from people and giving people guidance. And, and, and maybe my advice is lousy, but at least I'm trying to, to, to help out and, and, and do things. But basically, if you've had the kind of life I've had, you become very grateful. And you, you become very sensitive that other people don't have the opportunities, particularly right now. Life, life is crazy right now. Fantastic. Well, to finish it off, I think a good way to go would be to let you pay it forward to some other writers. Who are some writers on Substack that you think are, are worthy of more attention? Oh, wow. There's so many good writers on Substack. Uh, I probably subscribe to 20, 30, 40 Substacks now. And that app you have is great because it's just, they're all there. And it's almost like an alternative newspaper. And if you you pick the writers well, you just you it's it's amazing. It's it's at a point now where it's better just to go through the Substack app than any other periodical. So and so I I can't even begin to do a comprehensive list. I'll just focus on some music writers because right. that's the area I, I know awesome. most. Doctor Lewis Porter is a longtime friend of mine, and I told I told him Substack is the place for you, Lou, and he's on Substack and he's just doing great stuff. We just published something this morning that was amazing. And he's he knows so much about jazz and music, and he's so authoritative. Uh, so Dr. Lewis Porter, I love his stuff. Uh, I see Greal Marcus is now on Substack, yeah. uh, which is great. Ethan Iverson, as, as good a jazz critic as you'll ever see, uh, he is now writing regularly on Substack. He's had a Substack for a while, but he's picked up the pace, and he's now doing – things two, three times a week, and that's just a delight. There are other people that are less well-known, like my my um, big band guru, Jeff Sultanoff, who knows anything and everything you'd want to know about big band music and do all the arrangers. He puts stuff up there. But that just scratches the surface. I can say authoritatively that the best music coverage in the world right now is the stuff on Substack. Even taking myself out of the mix, just the other people on Substack it, it's an extraordinary situation. And this is very interesting because a year or two ago, you wouldn't have said that Substack was a place for music writing, but now it is. Well, that's awesome. I'll make sure, we'll make sure to put that in the show notes and that people will have links to those to find those writers easily. But Ted, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Thank you for your wisdom and your advice and your stories. Well, thank you very much. This was fun. And let's do it again sometime. You can find The Honest Broker on Substack at tedjoya.substack.com. That's T-E-D-G-I-O-I-A.substack.com. I'll be back next week with Jessica Defino. See you then. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com. R-E-A-D dot substack dot com. <laughs>